But I was working with Denny O'Neill, you know, famously the, the biggest bleeding heart liberal in comics. And, and he wouldn't be offended. I've said that to his face. He wouldn't be offended at me <laughs> saying that. It was a badge of honor for him. And here I am, you know, to the right of Attila the Hun. And uh, we always got along great, you know, creatively. And I, I talked to him about this and I said, look, because Robin is about a teenager and because teenagers in the real world are facing issues, you know, real issues, you know, guns in school, pregnancy, drugs, date rape. I said, I want to deal with these, but not as an issue comic, not as look at us, we're being relevant, but as story. Hello and welcome to Culturescape, the show that interviews the geeks that built modern nerd culture. Today I am here with a comics legend. If you are a comic book reader in the last 30 years, you probably know the name of Chuck Dixon. Over his successful career in writing and comics, Dixon wrote some of the most influential Batman and Robin comics of the time that are still looked up to this day, including some of my favorites like The Nightfall Event and No Man's Land. He has a fantastic run in Nightwing. He came up with the DC character Spoiler and the villain Bane and many others. And of course, Bane may sound familiar if you've seen The Dark Knight Returns. In that film adaptation, the villain is based on his character. Dixon also led a prolific run of Marvel characters, including, Mar including Moon Knight, who recently was adapted for a Disney Plus series, and The Punisher. Throughout Dixon's career, he has watched the rise and fall of the comics industry, the end of the news stand, and the humbling of the direct market. He's watched the industry fall into political shenanigans and poor writing. Today, we will talk with Dixon about his careers, what's it like being a comics writer, what happened to the industry, how did he end up writing for this <laughs> publisher called Arkhaven, and where the comic industry goes from here, if anywhere. Hi, Chuck. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Chuck, so it, it's really neat to have you here. I appreciate it. Um, I, when I first started getting reading into comics, my aunt collected them. Uh, that was in the 90s. Her favorite was Nightwing, and of course, that was mostly you. Uh, so it's it's neat to get to talk to you here today. Um, you're just you're just a very talented creator, and you're an interesting guy. And having listened to your interviews for this, I think this will be a good episode. So let's start here, Chuck. How did you become interested in comics and writing? What what, what led you into your love of geekery? Yeah, I yeah I don't I don't remember a time when I didn't have comics in my life uh i don't remember my first comic i was reading comics before i could read uh and then i learned to read basically from comics so uh missed a lot of school when i was a, a young kid and comics helped me pass all the reading exams uh you know stan lee gave me a enormous vocabulary <laughs> for a six-year-old so uh, um and then uh when i was in school you know i had a lot of success with creative writing projects you know the the kids and teachers responded to them well and i thought well maybe this is what i should do wow so how did you get your first big break into comics how old were you by the way you were pretty young right no no i was actually uh i i really didn't go full-time in comics till i was 32 uh, so okay. I, I spent a lot of years trying to break in and a lot of years working you know dead-end jobs uh <laughs> you know but always 
always aiming toward comics. I, I didn't have a plan B. So, so was that difficult for you when you like when you're trying to make it to this industry and you felt like you were doing these dead end jobs? Did you feel like this was an achievable goal or uh, was it hit or miss? What 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 was the kind of feelings you had back then? I just knew I would never be happy unless I got to work in comics and yeah. and work in comics in a meaningful way. I didn't want to be an intern. I didn't want to work at a comic shop. I wanted to be <laughs> a, a creator, you know, uh, and it didn't matter what it was. I mean, I didn't necessarily have to be on Batman or Spider-Man. I just wanted to be on whatever. I just love the media. I just wanted to be in whatever venue I could get into. And it was difficult because I started trying to break in in the 70s terrible time to try to get into comics oh yeah no se- comics from the 70s that was a that was a weird time in comic books uh, it's hard really to describe uh it, it was to the point where like may felt like main stage marvel characters or dc characters taking back seats to the strangest uh characters or comics team setups um if you watch any comic youtube channel they'll go into some of these more um strange ones like the new t- like uh teen times had etc it was crazy um yeah. so you did not start at dc that's where people most know you from but you you worked on a story about a much younger character how, how who was the first people you worked for in comics and how did you get into that well my first regular gig was uh airboy at eclipse and uh simultaneously i started you know, almost simultaneously I mean, within a couple of weeks, I was I was sold stories to Larry Hama at Marvel, and then uh, I got a phone ringing here. Right, that's all. Uh, so anyway, um, so almost simultaneously, you know, I got two major breaks, and uh, you know, the, the break with Larry Hama led to regular work on Conan. So um, you know, that was enough to quit my day job. And so, so that that uh, relationship with Larry Hama then led on to bigger and better things. So yeah, that was a very, very important. And 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 the break in Eclipse was important because Airboy, the title that I was writing for them, uh, was seen by uh, comic editors who later hired me on the basis of that work. Wow, that is exciting. That is kind of special when you work on a project and you feel like maybe it doesn't have the most mainstream pillars, the most seen, but like. There's that one person or, or set of people that can recognize talent really well and see it and they grab you. I'm sure that must have been extremely exciting at the time since you had worked, worked trying to get into comics for so long. Yeah, I mean, you know, to have somebody like Denny O'Neill say, I read your Airboy run and I really liked it. And I, I, we'd like you to write Robin. I'm like, oh, oh OK. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I never I never expected to write Batman. It just happened. Yeah, but Batman was then and is still now kind of like like that's what people want to do if they the what most normal people that's where they want to end up. He's the, that's like that's the top shelf stuff. Batman, Superman, especially over that DC. So they sent they sent you to work on Robin and you had you you so much of the stuff we see with the Batman family came out of your work. You came up with a character of course um of spoiler uh what 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 was it like when he was working on these comics? Uh, what what did it feel like to work at DC? How was it working comics back then, say, versus um, uh, working in comics today? Well, I mean, you know, I'm working with Denny O'Neill, the guy who basically, you know, resurrected Batman. You know, took him back to his roots. So I'm working with the guy who who, who built this this Bat universe. 
and that was awesome. And the fact that he had faith in me was awesome because then he was a hands-off editor. He just hired people he thought were capable, and he let them go until they stumbled. And uh, I never stumbled. Uh, and, you know, we, we had a really great working relationship. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, he and Archie Goodwin were both mentors to me, uh, both in general as a writer and, and more specifically on the Batman titles. So it was great. I mean, if, if a creator knows that his publisher and his editor have faith in him, he, he, you know, you can work miracles. Yeah, then that's definitely true in uh, journalism as well. Having, a, having an editor that gets what you're doing, what you're trying to do. And they, they understand that kind of mission that this, your project has. That really does help where, versus you work with an editor that maybe doesn't really know what you're working on is about or doesn't care for it or just like, you're a nuisance. The, the work relationship and the stuff that comes out of it uh, doesn't tend to be as uh, good. Um, you were not a fan. I've, I've read this a number of places. You liked the switch. So in the 80s, with you said Daniel Neal, Batman went from what was kind of like a mostly comical character to a much more serious one you hated the adam west show I've, I've heard you say that in a number a number of places why was that what was what was about the adam west batman show back in the day um, well, which well, i guess now people love but what was what was your issue with it well when i was a kid i hated it because i was um i was like 11 years old when the show came on and um, to me, it just was sacrilege. I mean, I was watching the first episode. I was really anticipating because they promoted the hell out of it, but they didn't give me any idea what the show was going to be like. You just knew that Batman was coming. And literally, they would have an ad, 10-second spot, Batman is coming. And so I was all excited. I'm watching the first episode, and my parents are watching it with me, and they're laughing at it because it was funny. And I was like, you know, Batman's not supposed to be funny. Batman's a grim crime fighter. You know, he's a badass. He's the Dark Knight. And I just was really angry about the show at the time. As I got older, I've learned to appreciate it. Uh, and, you know, I'm very much a fan of it now. I understand what they were doing. But at the time, uh, it just seemed like it was blasphemous. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of fun to think of a little 11-year-old Chuck Dixon who'd been waiting so so eagerly for his Batman yeah. show to only go watch in the living room and his parents start flying. It's like, oh no, Batman's supposed to be cool. Don't don't do this. Yeah, there he is doing the Batusi. I was like, I was just crushed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so uh, you were working on Robin. What what did DC like about what you did with with the Robin character that that kind of set you apart? Because they gave you Robin, and then that kind of led to of course, to Nightwing, then to the rest of the Bat family, and on and on. What was it about your work that clicked so well with uh, DC and your editors? Well, I, they liked that I kept to the program. I didn't try to change the character from what, uh, basically, Alan Grant had developed Tim Drake quite a lot, and I just continued what Alan had done, and then, you know, added more things to it. Uh, they They wanted... They wanted a character that would succeed where Jason Todd had not, and they wanted me to figure out what made Jason Todd fail and avoid all of those pitfalls. And so I took Alan's uh, basic development of the character and then just use that as my guide. You know, whatever Jason Todd would do, Tim Drake will do the opposite. And then, of course, 
the, the, the first miniseries sold way beyond DC's wildest imagination because uh, they gave me projected sales figures and we blew past that the, the very first day. And um, and so that, you know, that's what they were most happy about was that it succeeded. What, what kind of sales figures back in the, when you started, I mean, you started before the, you, you started in the kind of heyday of the comics boom. And then you worked right through to its eventual collapse. What was it? What what was considered like good numbers in 1990 versus like, well, what do you think they say is a good number now for uh, sales of comics? Well, well, they they told me that I said I asked Denny, I said, what, what do they think this will sell? I was just curious. And he said, well, we did a Catwoman. We launched Catwoman and that sold around one hundred and seventy five thousand the first issue. And we think that Robin will do about that number. Well, you know, like I said, we did that number first day. It sold through. And they went, every time I would visit DC, they'd go, we're back, we're going back to press again. And they went back to press over and over and over again on, on that Robin, first Robin miniseries. And so uh, I have no idea what it sold in the end, but my wife and I referred to our second house as the house that Robin built. So gives the indication. <laughs> Uh, because you know, you know, uh, you get paid royalties, but of course, your royalties, while they were generous, are a small portion of what the title earned. Uh, so, you know, I don't know what the final sales figures were on it. And of course, it sold through with trades. Then we did a second miniseries, which sold even more. So, um, yeah, those were great numbers. Today, great numbers. Like, if you can crack thirty thousand at Marvel and DC, I think you're you're doing good. But but back then, I mean, I've, I've worked on books in the 90s, sold three and a half million copies. So, Jeez, that just does not happen. No. Like, no. like not even third. Like, like did these, like, to give um, the audience, like, it's considered sometimes pretty good if you can get, like, a 30,000 sales now. It's like, good yeah. job. And compared to, like, a three million, I mean. It's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. The it, impact is not there anymore. <laughs> You, now I love I love what you did with the Batman family. Like I said, my I got into comics. My aunt collected them. She was a huge fan of Nightwing. She loved Birds of Prey. She had a lot of Tim Drake, and all those those were all kind of in your wheelhouse. Um, the Tim Drake character is a really great one. I think the influence you put on him. I think some others too, like Mike Barone, had some interesting influences there. Tim Drake, of course, today is not the same character of Tim Drake as in the past. What exactly happened there with uh, with Drake? What went on between when you left and, oh, sorry, 30 years in the future from when you're working on Tim? How, how did that drastic change happen, and what was it? Well, I mean, they made him bisexual for some reason. Uh, and, you know, that was their, I guess, their marketing gimmick for that month was, you know, the boy wonder is bisexual, which, terrible idea <laughs> just a horrible idea uh i never sexualized any of these characters and people go well you know but you had them in romantic relationships yes romantic relationships not sexualized relationships when you start talking about a character's sexual proclivities you've sexualized them it's no longer a romantic relationship yeah you're you're you yeah i think sometimes they miss that it's like it's not so much well it is partially maybe that it's it's a very hot issue and can divide people but it's also what are you dragging their brains to what are you making them think of that otherwise they wouldn't have um 
it, I, I always found what happened to Tim Drake weird was because uh, having read Tim Drake, I was like, this guy is, he's dated an awful lot of ladies. <laughs> but this doesn't, this doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Uh, and you even, you basically, the, basically the go-to Tim Drake um, girlfriend on and off again, of course, is spoiler. Spoiler is a cool, is an interesting character. I, I heard you talk a little bit about this on um, Ethan Van Skyver's show years ago. Do you want to go into how you came, how that character came together, and what was that like? Well, she was created as a plot device. You know, I thought she was going to appear in one arc only. Uh, uh, it was um, Tom Lyle and I were doing some some work on Batman, and I wanted to do an arc where um, Clue Master has a daughter. We just revealed that he was married and he had a daughter, so we didn't know much about Clue Master, so it was wide open. And I thought he's got a daughter, and she's a rebellious teen. And how does the the daughter, teenage daughter of a supervillain rebel? Well, she becomes a costume vigilante out to ruin her dad's crimes. And she becomes the spoiler because she's going to spoil all of Cluemaster's <clears throat> schemes. And it was fun for like a three-issue arc. And I thought we did a good job. And I, I was prepared to never think about the character again. <laughs> and then this is when we get letters letters started coming in i mean hundreds of letters and it wasn't will we see spoiler again it was when will we see the spoiler again and so i had to think a lot more about the character I mean, who is she what's her motivations what's she like and uh and then of course because she's around the same age as tim drake it's natural boy girl they share an interest <laughs> there's going to be some you know uh propinquity there some some uh some tension some draw you know, romantic angle. And um, and it all just sort of grew out of that organically. And, it, and I've often said this, of all the characters I've created for comics, she's the one that seemed most alive in my mind. Uh, she really took on a persona of her own. What do you think it was about Spoiler that, that drew so much fan attention? What, what, do you, what element do you think you really nailed or understood that seemed to make the difference? Because that, that, she still is, even though she's not handled nearly as well as when she was in your hands. She's still a very pretty popular character. Yeah, I, I think she was relatable because she was, um, you know, <clears throat> she came from a you know, lower class background. I mean, her mom was a single mom because dad was in jail all the time. Mom worked as a nurse. Uh, she wants to be a vigilante crime fighter. She's, you know, like Peter Parker in the early Spider-Man stories has to make her own costume. Uh, her vehicle is a dirt bike because it's the only thing she can afford. And I think it, it just made her relatable. And she's also, she's a teenage girl. So she makes mistakes she, in her life. Uh, I mean, she got pregnant, you know, by some guy who obviously didn't care about her, things like that. And, and but I never showed her as, you know, stupid or anything else, but somewhat impulsive uh, as, you know, rebellious, but a likable character, a smart character, a dedicated, and courageous character. And I think people just responded to that. You know, she wasn't some sort of plastic uh, token female. Yeah, she was She was 3D. She, she felt yeah. like an actual character instead of a placard or whatever. You know, that, that brings us to a good point is that a mistake I think a lot of people who maybe didn't read comics back then or they just assume, like, they didn't cover social issues back, you know, when comics tried to be less um, uh, divisive. Well, maybe we'll put right. it that way. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't so much you guys want to cover it, but you wanted to handle it fairly. How did you figure that out? Like, 
with the spoiler having the pregnancy, how did you figure out how to find a balance to cover the issues? Because you wanted to not, you, you tried to cover both of it. You were like, we will cover the abortion side of the debate, but we'll also cover like maybe there are problems with adoption. How did you figure out how to do that? What, what was the culture like back there where they were thinking that way? Well, I mean, the, the culture politically, uh, there really wasn't a political culture at Marvel. There was at DC a little bit more. Uh, but I was working with Denny O'Neill, you know, famously the, the biggest bleeding heart liberal in comics. I mean, he wouldn't be offended. I've said that to his face. He wouldn't be offended at me <laughs> saying that. It was a badge of honor for him. And here I am, you know, to the right of Attila the Hun. And uh, we always got along great, you know, creatively. And I, I talked to him about this and I said, look, because Robin is about a teenager and because teenagers in the real world are facing issues, you know, real issues, you know, guns in school, pregnancy, drugs, date rape. I said, I want to deal with these, but not as an issue comic, not as look at us, we're being relevant, but as stories. I want stories to grow out of these things. And, you know, I basically told Denny, I don't want to do what you did in Green Lantern, Green Arrow, which is basically put the issue, political issue to the front. And to mm -hmm. hell with their big story, as long as you got your point across. I said, I don't want to get a point across. I just want to present these issues as story conflicts and not tell a reader how to feel about them one way or the other. And on every one of the issues I mentioned, which Denny and I had entirely, completely polar opposite views on, we were able to find a common ground to build the story on. And that's what we did. I mean, these were great um, excuses for, you know, you know, dramatic uh, storytelling. And yeah. that's what, you know, did. Because I, I thought teenagers would relate to a book that was dealing with problems that they were familiar with in their own environment. No, and it makes sense. I think the way you handle the stories too, it just, it, it does a better service even to those debates or each side of the debate because you're letting people decide for themselves and consider the merits of each or, or maybe it's a mixture. And you actually let people like think about it. I think what we're seeing so much now is that media especially comics but media in general they want to do the thinking for you you know they don't they don't really want you to be like well this is kind of like it could go either way this is a little bit of a contentious issue <laughs> it's like uh right. maybe maybe it's not obvious which is the moral right cause you know because like most things in life it's give and take uh and i think those stories we always find them richer i mean that's basically what house the dragon is it's going on right now for game of thrones it's like yeah, both teams have some good points. Whereas then you watch something like Rings of Power and well, in Rings of Power, it feels like no one has any good points. No. That's, that's, a, that's another issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like it's like the end of Doctor Strange Love when they're all arguing in the war room mm -hmm. and all of their ideas sound lunatic. But, um, you know, yeah, it's, it, you understand that this is their earnest opinion. And, and you can actually... Nobody's telling you whose idea is crazier. Uh, you know, I, I and I like that. You know, you, you leave it up because I, you know, this it's it's entertainment. It's not indoctrination. Or God forbid, you write a character that has a different view than the than you, the author does. Which, oh, that, yeah, that's get, another yeah, thing. Yeah, I'm in trouble now. My Levon Cade novels for writing a, a racist character who's actually interesting. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not in favor of him being a racist, but, you know, he's a fully rounded three-dimensional character that, you know, in, in some scenes you actually kind of have to like. So, it's, you know, these things challenge the reader. And it seems more like the real world to me. People are just more complex than 
than one label that you put on them. Yep, definitely true. So working on Robin, of course, led to Nightwing. Nightwing's a cool character. Uh, we kind of covered similar things like you did with Spoiler. Eventually, Nightwing leads you to you. You get to you're on you're at uh, you're at the home plate. You're at, you're on front of line. They're giving you the they're giving you the big bat. You get to take on Batman. What was it like, by the way, when you found out you were now going to take on Batman? Did you did you, was that like a moment where you're like, wow, I have really made it? I I just couldn't believe I was doing it. I just you know I'm like, uh, I heard someone who broke into stand up talking about doing stand up, and they said their first night on stage was. What if they figure out I'm not a stand-up guy? <laughs> you know, what if they figure out I'm not really good at this? You know, so I remember my first Batman arc that I wrote for Denny. He assigned me a three-issue arc on the Batman title. I handed it in and said, I don't know if I have another Batman story in me. And and he said, Well, let's worry about that later. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and then I just sort of got in the groove. I just sort of got you know immersed myself in Gotham City, immersed myself in that world. And then when Graham Nolan came on Detective with me, that's when it really blew up for me because, you know, Graham is such a, a Batman scholar. So it was two guys really, you know, uh, given 110% on every page. Yeah, your your run with Batman, especially Detective Comics, is fantastic. I think you might, I think you might have gone 100 issues, I think, with Detective. No, it's like uh, it's, eighty-five issues. It's a, it's up there though. It's pretty high. Yeah, but there's a lot of other Batman. I was on yeah, I was on the title for eleven years on on various miniseries, annuals, you know, specials, whatever. That adds up fast, considering how yeah. how many Batman titles there is. It's it's interesting in comics today. The, basically, the only comic I think they're at the big two that I can semi rely on having something that looks like a story is with Batman. That's probably why DC, I swear, half their lineup are Batman titles now. Yeah, I think it's a it's it's a character that they can always find a writer that wants to do it. Because <laughs> I mean, that's the Mount Everest. That's the one you everybody wants to do. Which is why I never pitched for it. It's like everybody's pitching for that. Let me let me write challenges of the unknown. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's smart thinking. It's like go go for the place where there's room and go from there. So you did all kinds of controversial things on your run. I mean, they're just really solid comics. But you, for example, uh, you brought in the character Bane, who tragically wounds Batman, and the Batman gets replaced by a ninja, or basically a ninja. Nightfall. Yeah, he's like a, he's like a Catholic ninja. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we could talk about Bane. What was it like when you did that? When you guys replaced Batman? Did the fan did the fan mail start to get a little uh, less than supportive? Yeah, the fans hated. Uh the Asbath character, the Jean-Paul Valet, they hated him. But of course, we wanted them to hate him. But but we thought, well, they'll hate him, but they'll find the story so engaging that they'll keep buying it. Well, sales started to crater uh, because people were like, I don't like this Batman. And so we the, the, the gimmick was supposed to go on longer. It was another six months, but we had to end it early to, to save the books because uh, readers responded so negatively. So our, our goal to show the readers that they did not want a psychotic loner Batman, uh, you know, paid off in spades uh, because they they turned their backs on him. I, I like the Nightfall story probably a little bit more than most. Uh, I wish there were more adaptations of it. I think Ezreal's a fascinating character and stuff, but you don't actually get a lot of adaptations of Nightfall. What you do get is the, the villain, uh, of course, of Bane. Bane is... If you've seen Dark Knight Returns, the the bald guy that wears the funny mask, 
in like the beginning of the movie, he like directs the planes to fly under each other. And anyhow, great movie. That character Bane, it's pretty close to what you wrote. You wrote the Bane character and he became popular. What inspired you to do Bane? Because Bane is kind of a, he's kind of a different villain than the typical uh, rogues gallery for Batman. Well, you know, basically we needed a replacement for KG Beast. Uh, we needed a, a, a guy who was the physical and intellectual equal of Batman. And KG Beast, there was no more USSR. So made it a little difficult. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, relegated to the ash heap of history. And um, so we needed a new character like that. And Denny wanted in Nightfall to create a new villain anyway. And for the longest time in, in setting up Nightfall and, and beginning it, uh, it, we had a placeholder name for this unknown villain that was going to break Batman's back. Um, but eventually it got down to where we're going to have to actually name this guy. We're going to have to create him, give him a backstory. And I remember, you know, saying, well, this is going to be difficult because for this, for this whole thing to work, this two year long continuity to work, this character has to click with the readers. Uh, They've got to respond to him in a big way. And how do you purposely go about creating a popular character? And I made such a fuss about it that then he said, well, if, if you think it's going to be so damn hard, just you do it. Go home and do it. And so, you know, I got the task. And I knew Graham would be drawing his first appearance. So I got Graham on the phone. And we threw a bunch of ideas around and uh, came up with what we came up with. You know, we wanted a tragic past. We wanted a sort of a mirror of Bruce Wayne. Uh, and I recently read about how North Korea, you can be jailed for your father's crimes. <laughs> I thought, well, what if, uh, you know, and we knew Bane was going to be connected with Venom. And I said, well, why not have him in the home of Venom, this, this super steroid, Santa Prisca, this made up Caribbean island. And uh, he's actually born in prison to serve his father's life sentence. And what kind of monster would come out the other end of that after, you know, 30 plus years of imprisonment? And that's how Bane was created. I got his name by going through the the, the Thesaurus. I looked up evil. <laughs> I looked up all all the words, and there was Bane. I thought Bane, that's pretty cool. <laughs> You're like that, I said, that I one's not taken. Guy. That one's not yeah, taken. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that the one. other thing. You know, <laughs> and, and this was the '90s. Everybody was being called, you know, you know, Devil Dog or Werewolf, or you know. I was like, no, nah, I want you know, simple name, simple name. And when I told them. DC, my editors, they said, yeah, I want to call him Bane. I'm like, oh, no, we'll come up with something better than that. And then three days later, we were, we were all calling him Bane. <laughs> it stuck. Why did you guys go with the breaking? Why, 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 why was the choice that you would break Batman's back? That would be the injury that would uh, take him out of his career as a superhero. Did someone have back issues on the, on the staff? Or how did you guys decide on that? I think it was the idea that it, it was a it was a really terrible injury that he could come back from. He could come back from it. Uh, I, I joked at the time, well, if Gloria Stefan could come back from it, <laughs> Bruce Wayne can. Uh, you know, she had broken her back in a really horrific car accident, yeah. and you know, two years later, she's back up on stage dancing like nothing had ever happened. So, um, and Denny was under a lot of pressure to do something major with Batman after the death of Superman, but we didn't want to kill him. You know that, and so then he came up with the idea of giving him this massive injury. And of course, once he brought up the back-breaking thing, I was like, "Well, how will he come back from it?" 
And uh, my uh, sister-in-law is an ICU nurse. She gave me all kinds of advice. What would have to happen in the first 12 hours after the injury and, and advice on, you know, what, what would his physical therapy be like and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, cause I'm always a logistics guy, but yeah, that was the idea. I mean, it's a horrifying, uh, injury. It's also, you know, visually, a uh, very visceral image, you know, the Bane just bending Bruce Wayne over his knee. So, it all you know, it all, you know, worked perfectly. I mean, you know, I can't imagine, you know, breaking his legs or blinding him or something like that. It just wouldn't have had the same effect. No, that makes sense. Um, yeah, your your stuff is very thorough. I like that you work so hard to get inspiration. One of the one I think one of the weaknesses of the Dark Knight Returns the Bane adaptation, I think it misses some of that. Or like yeah. for example, like Batman, he his back injury happens, but he kind of comes back without without too much of, or at least not medical help. And I always thought that was kind of weird. It was typical of a Nolan movie. There's just too much in there. It, you know, he puts too much in the movie. It, it, it's, it's like not a feature-length story, but he just sort of crams it all in. So are there adaptations of your stories that you do like? Um, Batman the Animated Series. I like how they did Bane. Uh, from the portrayal to having Henry Silva do him with a Latino accent. Uh, and then they did an adaptation of a story that Graham and I did, uh, a Harvey Bullock story that was very faithful to the comic. Uh, I was very flattered uh, that they, they hewed that closely to the story we had done. That Okay, yeah, that's interesting because I remember people sometimes complain about um, BTAS and how they depicted Bane, but he is he is very brutal and he does have that some of that intelligence. Uh, my oh, first... you mean late, later that... I mean, in the second series where he's throwing Batgirl off a building, it's one of the most horrific animated sequences I've ever seen. Especially for kids' television. Terrifying. So I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I rather like uh, Bane's portrayal in the first season or second season of the Young Justice cartoon. I thought that was pretty. I thought that was a pretty decent adaptation of kind of what you were trying to get across my character. It is so. It is fascinating. I. You know, to segue from this, and of course, we want to go through your career. Um, so you did very well at DC. You are there for 11 years. What led you to eventually uh, leaving DC? And of course, you did work with Marvel on, on different projects. But how did you move from the big two to later cross-gen, I think? Well, you know, Denny retired, and, and that was kind of the end of an era. Uh, and they hired a replacement group editor who... The kindest thing I can say is he seemed indifferent <laughs> to the task of being a group editor, uh, sort of passive aggressive. Uh, and, you know, like I said, if you know your editor has faith in you, you can work miracles. But if you know your editor really doesn't even respond, you know, when you send stuff in, you know, you never hear anything back. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, you know, shouting down a well. Uh, you're only going to hear your own echo. So uh, after a while, and then I began to pitch, the, I would pitch things and they would go nowhere. Uh, and that was unusual for me. You know, it's like, uh, well, at least give me a response or a reason why we're not doing this. And um, I just realized I'm not going any further here. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I've got my three monthlies. I, I, I started to get the sense that they would love for me to leave. 
they couldn't fire me because my books were selling well. Uh, so they say no justification for getting rid of me, but they would have liked to have gotten rid of me. And um, I got the offer from CrossGen, and I thought, well, maybe it's time for a change. Uh, you know, I think CrossGen was my midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I moved to Tampa and started working for this company that, that I knew day one wasn't going to last very long <laughs> because I, I saw all the mistakes early on they were making that every other failed comic book company. But it was fun. I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was a blast. Well, I'm glad you had a positive experience there. Creatives, I mean, this probably is human nature in general, but creatives, that is one of those weird things where it's like being successful does not necessarily mean there's a higher chance that you will continue on doing the thing that you're successful with. I don't know if that's like jealousy or, or what, but that does happen. You see in journalism too. It's like, well, they just they just broke up you know, XY story. You, know, you probably should keep it around. And they're like, no. We don't think so. It's <laughs> like, um, okay, whatever, you're lost. Uh, so you you worked at CrossGen for a little bit, and then you got into other projects. I think you did some novel writing. Yeah, I kind of, after CrossGen, I was kind of in the wilderness. Uh, I was back at DC and fits and starts for like short periods of time. Uh, Marvel wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. And uh, there weren't as many independent publishers around. And I got, you know, offers here and there. Uh, thank God for Bongo and The Simpsons, because uh, I continued working for them. And um, but after a while, there just wasn't as much comic work as I was used to. I was my schedule was not full. And uh, so I looked at the ebook thing, you know, hey, I can write a book, publish it myself and keep all the money. Uh, why not? And uh, so I began writing novels. I, I had never had an intention to be a novelist. You know, I'm not one of these guys who writes comics because they really want to be writing movies or, or novels. It, it, to me, it's always been about the comics and nothing else. But, you know, uh, you, you, I still had a mortgage to pay. Uh, I still had the creative urge. So I started, you know, writing novels. And to this date, I've, you know, I've written over 30 of them. So, Wow. I did not know it was that many. I was uh, familiar with some of your uh, literature. That was interesting. So was that more a factor because you were freelance then and it was just harder to get work as a freelancer? Or was that more so about the changes in the comics industry? It was more about the changes in the comics industry because when, you know, everybody knew my rep, I was reliable. You know, uh, if you wanted a story about, you know, Captain Potato Salad, or well, you know, tell me how many pages, tell me the deadline, and I'll, I'll probably beat the deadline. You know, and I'll give you something that readers respond to and will sell my stuff. I was always into, you know, I want this to be a successful project. So, uh, so I was used to the phone ringing and just being offered. And that stopped happening. You know, no one was offering me anything. I was persona non grata at DC and Marvel and uh, at a lot of the other independents. But, uh, you know, but I still had some friends in the industry. I mean, Ted Adams reached out to me to do G.I. Joe at IDW. I did a lot of work there. Uh, and just, you know, little projects here and there. Uh, I, I did a I did a weekly comic strip for Microsoft. Uh, <laughs> I did not know, know that. Yeah, yeah, that's very, if you, if you go to my Subscribestar account, you can see examples of that. But, but um, you know, I, I did some manga thing that Marv Wolfman suggested me for. Uh, it was like a one-shot manga thing. I can't even remember the name of uh, a guy in Israel hired me to do a graphic novel about the uh, young pirates. I mean, it's, 
So I was like taking anything that came along. This is a that's a good segue to have. So what what in the world happened to the comics industry? You came into it and it was going strong. People are like some a lot of people thought maybe this thing will go on forever. Of course, uh, I don't I don't want to put words in mouth. So what happened to the comics industry where it went from boom when you started by the time you left the big to it gone bust? Well, throughout the eighties with the growth of the direct market and the newsstand uh, comics and all these independent publishers, I mean. Uh, Sales were great. I mean, if you had a, a worthwhile title with some quality, got a following, you were doing great. And then we move into the 90s, where it just explodes. And you've got comics, you know, once again, selling in the millions like they used to in the 50s. Uh, and, you know, these comic creators are becoming superstars. Uh, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, it just ended. It's like one month we were going gangbusters. The next month, you couldn't give them away. Uh, part of it was the, the bottom fell out of the speculators. But the more mysterious aspect for me was uh, early 90s, there were a lot of kids reading comics for the first time in a long time. And I know this, I would go to cons and most of the line would be kids. And I was always happy to see that because I was like, <clears throat> this is how you keep this going. You know, we're bringing in new readers. This is the most awesome expectation we could possibly have. And for whatever reason, those kids, and they'll do this, they just didn't buy comics anymore. It's like overnight it was over. And uh, now we're scrabbling, you know, and the comic companies make the worst decision they could possibly make. They withdraw from the newsstand to double down on the direct market. And I knew from my own royalty statements that the newsstand, that was my biggest sales. My biggest sales were to casual comic book readers, not fans. And when they withdrew from the newsstand, it, it just made everything worse. Uh, there was less money coming in, and obviously no new readers, because where are you going to see comics if they're not on the newsstand? They're not readily visible to casual readers. Because no one walks into a comic store cold. No one says, hey, I wonder where there are comics, and you know, goes to the nearest comic shop. It just it's never happens. Uh, and things just got worse from there. And as really talented editors and really talented publishers began to drop out of the business to be replaced by people who were, as I said, indifferent, uh, the quality drops and it, it, this void is created and nature hates a vacuum. So the void gets created by people who have a political agenda. And that's when things really get bad. And that's why the sales are so miserable now because they're just, Comics are supposed to make, entertain you and make you feel good, not make you feel, you know, ashamed to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> so what did what did you hear in the comics industry when that drop was starting to happen? What was the common explanation there? What did your bosses tell you? Well, they always say, well, it's video games. I heard this just the other day. I was on a podcast. I said, well, you know, video games have hurt sales. I said, well, they haven't hurt manga's sales. Manga is doing better than ever. Uh, so what is manga doing right that American comics aren't? You know, and I can go on and on about that, you know. Uh, but, but you know, this is a failure of, of craft. It's, a, it's just a failure of talent. Uh, the gatekeepers uh, in comics now, you know, with the major publishers, they're just, um, they're left-wing trolls. I mean, and, and everything has to be seen through their lens. And they've hired people who are 
some of the least talented people to ever work in comics. And there's a few bright spots here and there, but largely you have this huge army of unemployed or underemployed comic talent who have either gotten out of the business or gone on their own into the very, very robust crowdfunding field, self-publishing field. It's a, it's a mess. It's made it, you know, it's made it really difficult to find comics these days. They're like, Oh, you know, you, you have a feeling like, okay, I'll be entertained. This this will lead to something or I'll go somewhere. Um, and it, it, you, know, the, you talk about how political things have gone. Um, even creators who maybe they put out better than average work, like Tom King, super duper political, always getting into e-drama, getting people fired. Um, was that, that must have been a way different attitude than what you were used to when you were back in the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, people knew I was conservative. I'm an outspoken guy. You know, uh, you, you, you know, I, I'm never afraid to give my opinion on anything. And, you know, we would go to lunch or, or at summits. I mean, summits were literally living together for three or four days at a time. And you would get into these heated political discussions. But once the heated political discussion was over, we just went back to work. You know, and there wasn't any, oh, I hate that guy. Or, you know, if I ever get a chance, I'm going to make sure he doesn't get into work. It was none of that. None of that going on. It was all this because our work wasn't political. We weren't putting our politics into our work. Uh, so like they do now. So it didn't matter what your personal beliefs were, uh, you know, except over the dinner table. And but then it became, you know, clicks. And it's not all political. I mean, there was just these these clicks formed in comics as the new publishers and new editors came in. And and if you weren't part of the click, if you didn't like the music they liked. You know, uh, if you didn't like the movie like, they liked, they, they wouldn't hire you. Yeah, that is a weird, that is a weird thing about dying industries. Like, because uh, G4 TV just collapsed. I've been writing about that. It, it, it Sometimes it feels like they, they become more controlled, not less. Like the people like become more stringent gatekeepers. It's, it's, this, it's similar. It's like all these huge personalities, all these attitudes, and the sales are in the dump. Um, I mean, look, look what they did to science fiction. You know, uh, they they created rules for science fiction. It's like this is the last genre that should ever have rules. And if you if you didn't follow them, you know, you couldn't work in the business. You were, you were driven out. And then you look at who the biggest sellers are in science fiction, and they're all the authors who didn't subscribe to those rules. Yep. Uh, and, and consequently, they're hated by the science fiction, you know, insider clickish community. But readers love them. One of the partners for this podcast is Bane Books, and they publish oh, well, fantastic example. stuff. Yeah, perfect example. Yeah, I mean they're like the outlier publisher, also the most successful publisher because of that. Uh, the the counterpoint to the issue of comics being a demand issue is, of course, the rise of manga and web comics. And I'm trying to think of what Korea calls theirs. Um, you know, the, uh, alternatives for traditional comics. And those sales are strong. Why are those sales strong when, when Western comics are not? Well, diversification is, you know, they talk about diversity. <laughs> Every American comic is the same. It's about some superpowered individual, you know. Uh, it's, it's all superheroes. It's all one genre. And comics have never been that, you know. Comics have had times when superheroes were the best sellers and they were the worst sellers. You know, uh, comics have been through periods where the bestsellers were horror, westerns, funny animals, war comics. I mean, uh, you know, Ninja Turtles, uh, it, you know, and the, the big two seem to resist that. 
And then every, uh, so many of these new independent publishers are like, well, we got to create our own superhero universe. I was like, no, 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 no. Run away from that. Do anything else, any other genre. Uh, and that's what manga is. And there's, there's, you know, if you like golf, there's like six golf mangas. If at you, least. <laughs> I mean, at least. I mean, I'm, one of my favorite mangas is, is about fishing. Uh, I don't fish, but I love this manga. Uh, and, you know, there's something for everybody. And that's simply not true in mainstream American comics. Now, in crowdfunding, you see horror, war, westerns, all the rest of it. Uh, but uh, in, in DC and Marvel have become specialists. And it's one of the reasons I'm still around. I never became a specialist. I never specialized in one genre of comics. That gives you a lot, a lot more versatility, which means you can take on a, a wider range of projects. You don't get pigeonholed or anything. Yeah, I'm a guy they think of. You know, hey, this 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 one's military theme. Get him. This one has to be funny. Yeah, get get him. So, makes sense. Uh, trying to get back to my train of thought. <laughs> so, but so uh, I imagine you or someone say that you don't think you're probably going to get a call from DC anytime soon to, to do some more Batman comics. But there was, there was a short period after you were in the wilderness where you did come to DC for a little while. You worked on right. um, uh, the outsiders stuff, I believe uh, some more Robin and Batman stuff. Uh, yep. How did you get back into it? And then what pulled you back out? Well, they, they asked me to do, to come do Robin and uh, cause they were going to, they're going to reveal a spoiler had not died, whatever stunt. Yeah, 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 she's still alive. And so I said, okay, you know, and I thought, well, I'm back on Robin. And then I was up in New York seeing some publishers, different publishers, and uh, I stopped in at DC. And uh, Dan DiDio, who was in charge then, kind of an impulsive guy, and just seeing me in the hallway said, hey, do you want to write Batman the Outsiders? And I'm like, well, let's talk about it and they took it away from tony bedard friend of mine who had written three issues and just gave it to me and i thought i thought it was just on a whim and um <clears throat> so i wrote like 10 issues of that i think i wrote six issues of robin maybe and i thought well hey i'm back in you know i started doing store appearances to promote them and i thought okay i'm, I'm back in i got two monthly titles at dc I'll, i'm a dc guy again. and and then i get a call uh, from my editor, and it basically told me your your services are no longer provided. You're off both of your titles. And I said, why? And he says, I can't tell you. <laughs> like, what? So then I knew it was came from on high. And I never did find out what it was. That's and the, the weirdest thing about it was I did the usual thing I always do is once I get a monthly title and the pay is regular, I just keep writing. You know, uh, so when they fired me, they had about thirty thousand dollars in inventory from me that they were never going to do anything. That is so bizarre because you do yeah, have is. you have such a strong proven track record, and people have such uh, nostalgia for some of your work. But it, it's just weird. It's like it's like if Stanley were still alive and they decided to pull him off, you know, a Spider-Man book or whatever. He's just like people. There's just just if you're just going to get some sales on the nostalgia alone. It's, that is just so crazy. Have you ever, did you ever get an inkling for what that might be? Do you have a theory perhaps for whose toes you stepped on or why they? they well, it, it was the, Dan DiDio micromanaged everything. And and I don't know what happened. I mean, you know, he got another whim and decided this guy sucks. You know, but it, the, the hardest part of it was, you know, creatively for me, 
it was a you know a kick in the pants because I uh, I was really going somewhere on Batman the Outsiders, <laughs> and I was really upset that okay you're taking me off. I mean I'm, I'm just hitting my stride here. I was I'm really going for this huge thing, this huge story event, and you just sort of cut me off at the knees, and then and then just replaced me with with someone else who was a, like a Dan Dio high school friend or something. So I want to go, of course, into archive. Chuck, why are you so much more outspoken than your contemporaries? There are a lot of former top comics. I called you a legend. I, I don't know if I call everyone that, but people who have a proven track record around your age, some older, some younger. But why, are, why is it that you're more outspoken and willing to, to talk about these things? Because there seems to be, there seems to be this fear in the, well, some among the readership, most among the creators, for speaking out about what's gone wrong in the comics industry or why the new books suck. What makes you different? Why did you decide that you were going to be outspoken? I've kind of always been outspoken, uh, which made me unpopular in some circles in comics. I mean, from, from day one, uh, if I saw, I don't, I didn't care who they were. I don't, I didn't, I don't care if it was the CEO. Uh, I didn't care if it was Paul Levitz or Jeanette Kahn. If I saw them doing something stupid, I'd call them out on it. And so why are we doing it this way? Give me an explanation as to why we're missing this opportunity or why we're doing this, you know, politely, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I'm not an employee here. I'm a partner with you. I want to, I want to be here to help. We're all trying to create the highest quality work we can. At least that was true then. And, and, and they were, and it's like, well, why are we failing here? Why, you know, why don't we do this? And, you know, um, they would always, you know, they always knew I was very serious about uh, that when I said I, I wasn't griping about pay or griping about another freelancer, which is a no-no, um, you know, it was always something uh, <clears throat> meant to bring us more success. I was more, I was interested in us being successful as, as a publishing venture, and all of that kind of vanished. All of that kind of went away uh, uh, as the more talented, you know, iconic figures left the big companies and now it was left to people to whom earnings didn't seem to matter sales didn't seem to matter and i i just can't exist in that world and that just made me more outspoken and of course now i'm dealing with people who are thin-skinned and you know prone to outrage and low self-esteem so you know uh, i became an enemy yeah. to them. but that didn't stop me from talking about it and you know i my work speaks for itself. I'm, I, you know, I, I think I do good work and I'm reliable. Uh, if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. And so that can, I continue to get work because of that. I'm as busy now as I was in the nineties. The, the comics industry could use a lot more Chuck Dixon's. I think even, <laughs> really it could, even if they weren't, even if they weren't like, uh, right. What did you say? Your right wing of Attila the Hunt. Even if they weren't yeah. right wing of Attila the Hunt, they could just use more of them. The stuff that you see that the big two do with like even their creators, the shenanigans they're up to, some of it's really gross. Like I think we see Mags, uh, I can't pronounce her last name, uh, Viziago. I can't. I'm not even going to try again. Uh, you know, I think weekly she has some kind of Kickstarter talking about how she needs help to pay the rent. Uh, and you've heard similar things from multiple creators at these. And the, the big two, it used to be the big two is like, it's the big two, so it's not only like you're working in the big in the big leagues, but you would also right. in your day get the pay to match. 
And now it seems like these people aren't even getting enough pay to pass minimum wage. How does how do they get away with that? Why do people always stay silent? You put aside our politics like lefty right. What about politics like you're treating your employees kind of like crap? Uh, maybe you might want to say something about this. Well, I mean, you know, my bugaboo with DC Comics in particular is they stopped paying international royalties. Uh, they just simply stopped paying them. They didn't send us this nice little friendly letter saying we're not going to pay you international royalties anymore. They just stopped doing it. Now, for somebody like me, it hurts because my work is never out of publication in Europe. I mean, they put out hardcover Chuck Dixon collections in Europe. I don't see a penny from them. And I've asked over and over and over again. And the answer is always, we're going to look into this. <laughs> sure. I've been hearing this for years. I mean, this is like 2008. They stopped paying them. And um, there's no real reason why. And I point out, you know, this is in our contracts that you owe us this money. You can't simply stop paying us. It's royalties. We're owed them. And it literally says in, in every contract I've signed, there's a section on international sales, international royalties. and But no one will speak up about it. When I first spoke up about it, I thought, well, everybody's going to stand behind me and say, yeah, where's my money? No one. No one's yeah. done it because they're afraid and they'll go, oh, well, you know, they might not call me to work for them. Well, they haven't called you in over 10 years. They're never going to call you. So, so go in and get your money. Yep. It, being afraid, it can be a learned behavior. It's hard to break out of. A lot of people have wondered. Yeah, I mean, and, and apparently, you know, they've, they've lowered page rates, which is something would never have happened back in the day. You know, uh, we go, we're going to pay you less for this. It's like, <laughs> that, that just would never have happened. No, and that explains even like the decrease in art. Because art used to be like something was, you could, even even with all the terrible writing, that seemed like something that you could at least get. But even the cases of now the art for some of these books, just dreadful. Yeah. You're like... Yeah. Was the was the writer half drunk and asleep when he did this? What happened? Well, in so many cases, these are what I call tourists. Um, they're not comic book lifers. They're not people dedicated to working in comics. Uh, they think that you know writing and drawing for DC or Marvel is a good resume enhancer for their next job. Uh, whereas people like me and people like every single person I've ever worked with in comics, we were in it for the long haul. This is this, we were where we wanted to be. Why, why didn't the success that you've seen, especially when you think of Marvel, all these, all these Marvel products, all these Marvel movies, superheroes are so big in the public, public uh, cultural zeitgeist. How come that hasn't um, trickled down to comic sales or, or just to the quality of the work that these companies put out? It feels like almost, it almost feels like the better the movies and the more of them the worse the comics get is that and that's not even getting into the issue of them like make messing with the characters in the movies that are based on comic creators works so that they're legally distinct but everyone knows like no, that character is obviously supposed to be based on this person that character is supposed to be based on this person and disney just doesn't want to pay royalties right well i i think the availability of comics because they're not on the newsstand. They're not readily available to the public. The public doesn't see, you know, particularly kids, you know, 10-year-olds are not seeing comic books. Um, and the other, the other thing that hurts is the quality of the work. 
but even when the comics were were good, we were doing good stuff. Um, there was no connection between the success of the movies, like the success of the Batman movies and, and Batman's comic sales, uh, because they just weren't readily available. And they also weren't promoting them as comics. You know, they weren't really doing anything. I mean, you know, why not take out a television ad? See what happens. Uh, every time they've done that, it's worked. They're, they did an ad for a G.I. Joe comic once, and it, it sold through the roof. Uh, so why don't you do that every week? Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot of different factors, but I think the big thing is, is that, you know, kids don't see them and you need kids. We've lost a generation or two of readers because comics have vanished from the culture. Yeah. It's a, it's a reading habit. I mean, and, and also, I mean, there's also the factor that, you know, if you like Spider-Man, you got Spider-Man movies, you've got Spider-Man games, you can be Spider-Man in a game. And maybe that's enough Spider-Man for, for someone. But there's enough of an audience where that's not enough. And they want more that should be drawn to the comics and would be drawn to the comics if they knew they existed. I did a presentation for a junior high. This was years ago. This was in the 90s when comics were happening. And I did this presentation for a junior high. And I talked to like 100 kids. And I brought boxes of comics because I had all these comps. So every kid got a comic. And they were able to come up and, and, and pick their comic out. But it was heartbreaking because, number one, I mentioned that I did Simpsons comics. And a kid said, there are Simpsons comic books? I'm like, these kids don't even know these comics exist. you know. And then the other heartbreaking thing was they came up to the table and they immediately glommed onto Green Arrow comics. And they were trading back and forth. Kids were trading back and forth to get as many Green Arrow comics as a character they never heard of until that day. And I'm like, this is what should be happening in every drugstore, every 7-Eleven, every supermarket, and it's not. I I have a I mean, you know, when I when I was a kid, I can remember them being on newsstands, but that was that was it wasn't too much later that that stopped. Um, yeah. So let's uh let's let's flip back more to your career again. So you decided you know what's really big-ish today are um, indie comics and uh, yeah, independent Kickstarters stuff that's involved with Comicsgate. You you were a little earlier on this than I think most, and the person you partnered with is a little controversial. I'd probably say uh, Vox Vox Day, who is an <laughs> author and he runs the Arkhaven comic series, which is a, a mix of different things. And of course, he famously one of his comics he has the hero that wears like a confederate cape no a confederate flag for a cape it doesn't it doesn't sell like a chuck dixon product but project but it's actually one you've been working on for a while now how, how did that happen why why did you like did people are like don't do that chuck it's too risky like how did how did it like come oh, together oh 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 i yeah, i've had so many interviews <clears throat> where it's like we've got to save chuck dixon from box day and I said, well, do you have any work for me? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I just stopped working for Vox Day and get a job at Home Depot. Is that the idea? Uh, you know, Vox reached out to me. Uh, I did a little research into who he was. I thought, this guy's different. This guy's got some crazy opinions, but they're his opinions. You know, I found out, you know, who he was, what he was about, what his background was. I was like, I don't 100% agree with everything this guy says. But, you know, I worked with him now a number of years. He's never made a promise he didn't keep. 
never lied to me. He's always paid me when he said he was going to pay me. And he's given me almost, well, you know, on our tunes, I have 100% creative freedom. I have so much creative freedom that Vox doesn't even know about a series I'm working on until we launch it. I mean, he reads it for the first time with everybody else. I mean, My Sister Suprema came out of nowhere for him. And, uh, you know, it's it's my biggest success on our tunes. And, you know, uh, why not work with the guy? And people go, well, he's got these ideas and he's got, and they, they, you know, quote me things entirely out of context. Um, and then, you know, they say, well, you know, you should work for him because he's this. And I said, well, where were you when I was working for communists? Where were you when I was working for, you know, a guy who's an obvious pedophile? You know, you didn't seem to care about those people in their backgrounds. I mean, who cares? It's comics. I'm not writing political stuff. You know, I'm not saying, well, Vox, what, what do I write about now? What idea do you want put forward now? He, he would never do that. Tell me what uh, to do, evil overlord. What what are your designs you, yeah. you wish me to as fulfill? As long as you acknowledge them as the evil overlord, you're fine. But <laughs> you know, and I've just I've I've just had a blast talking to the guy on the phone, you know, um and and just you know uh he's 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 done a lot for me and people people refer to me as the legend now because of Fox. So uh, and this is a time when no one was reaching out to me. So, you know, it was him and Richard Meyer, another controversial figure, reached out to me. And now um, uh, Eric July, another controversial figure, has reached out to me because they know I don't give a damn. You know, um, uh, you know I'll, I'll work for you as long as you keep your promises and pay me on time. So why this is kind of this is like this is the positive thing I think I've seen for comics the last two years. There are quite a few now fairly successful Kickstarter comics, indie comics projects, things that aren't associated with big two or even the smaller players. They're just totally their own thing. Why are we seeing such a resurgence there? Are there are there certain projects you really like or you, or you look forward to? Do you ever pay for, do you like ever buy into these Kickstarters yourself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, if it's Mike Barron or Graham Nolan or somebody like that, yeah, I'm there to support them. Uh, I've done a number. There was a recent thing. It was a come on comics. There were these comics connected with the uh, gaming miniatures. And comics look really cool. So I supported that. You know, I, my, my thing is support good comics. If you see a good comic, support it. You know, of course I've worked in the, the crowdfunding arena myself and I like it because it's, it's, it's truly diverse in every way. And I see guys like it's particularly Graham. I mean, it, we've, we've partnered so many times on projects, but I'm so damn proud of, He's worked so hard to build, you know, his own universe. And it's been extraordinarily successful and fans have responded to it because it's, it's quality stuff. It's good stuff. And he makes them a part of it. You know, it's this, this, it's this vibrant community. It's what comics used to be. And uh, he's having a ball doing it. And he's, you know, he's making real money. And he runs the business himself. It's, you know, him and his wife do the fulfillment and everything else. I mean, that is not easy. That is not easy. And, uh, you know, he's done it. It's incredible. I mean, so many of these projects are easily outselling even what the big two are doing. You know, I look at Eric, you know, I have friends that are supportive and some that were less supportive, like Eric July, who does the Ripiverse. And their, their thing right. was like, he doesn't have experience in comics, the book itself. You know, he has all these tropes or cliches he hasn't learned not to write yet. He's obviously pretty new to it. 
my my response is like, well, I may not love the book, but I know that he is bringing interest to comics. I think it shows that there is a demand there. People do want to read comics. Right. There are enough people out there that love the art form and just the medium itself. They're willing to invest in that. So I don't think people like that are necessarily that thing. Even if it's someone like Vox Day, I'm I'm maybe it's because I'm very libertarian and I'm like the more the merrier. Uh, right. Are there any projects right now that you're seeing that you're looking forward to or, or things you feel like are really neat or innovative? Well, Mike Barron's got this private American coming out and uh, he's shown me some pages from it. And it's the most badass thing Mike's ever worked on, which is really saying something. Yeah. I mean, it's out there. I mean, he's, he's going to piss people off with this book. And I think in a good way, I think that's really cool. Uh, you know, it's he's scratching his Punisher edge. And, uh, I mean, that's good to see. Uh, the other one is uh, from Allegiance Comics, Nora's Saga, which I think is the best American comic of the last 20 years. Wow. And, and that's coming out, you know, in a hardcover edition soon. I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, that's one I'm going to open and just start reading as soon as I get it. Uh, but that's, that's, you know, that's a terrific piece. And, again, both of these are not in the superhero genre. You know, they're exploring, you know, different uh, storytelling. They're, they're, they're following the manga path of being more diverse. So if you if you were given a magic wand or, or the Warner Brothers comes, you say, Chuck, we need you to save DC Comics. We're putting you in charge, Chuck. What do you do? Is it, it can you can you salvage it? <laughs> well, first, I would want, a, 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 you know, a contract about this thick <laughs> with lots and lots of guarantees that I'm not going to get fired, you know, at the end of the first week. <laughs> and then, uh, I, I've talked about this on my own YouTube channel. What would I do to bring attention to comics again, not save comics, but bring attention to them. And then once we have the attention then the job of saving them starts, and I would just do every crazy crossover I could imagine. I would have an army of entertainment lawyers out there arranging the most insane crossover ideas I could so that even the most casual comic book reader would go, you know, I, I think I might take a look at that and, and just go nuts. And, and, and then once you have that attention again, then start, you know, producing, you know, event publishing, uh, get away from the monthly pamphlets and do event publishing, get top creators, put them on top talent with, with high concept story ideas. And then just you know market it. You said you had a favorite comic you've seen the last twenty years. Do you have a least favorite comic? Is there a comic you hate more than any other? I don't want to say. I don't think I've looked at a comic I hate. I kind of tend to avoid comics I hate. Uh, I don't get comps anymore, so a lot of this stuff, thank God, I don't see. Yeah. So yeah, I just uh, I can't think of a comic I've really just you know liked because um, you know there's so much out there. You know, I I just read the stuff. You know, it's not like Netflix where you're watching something. You're going, oh my God, why am I watching this? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I binged something last night on Netflix. And I was like, man, this went nowhere. <laughs> the story just chased itself around for seven hours. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes with, with the streamers, it's like you spend an evening watching a show. And the next day you're like, did I watch something? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I remember. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you can possibly help us, do not watch The Watcher on Netflix. Because <laughs> trust me, it goes absolutely nowhere. 
So what projects are you working on right now, Chuck? I You sent me an uh, email with some some things that you're working at. I think there was something like well, Hunter, Ninja, Soldier, something like that. There was, there was three things. Hunter, Ninja, Bear. Hunter, uh, Ninja, Bear. Yeah, there. Hunter, Ninja, Bear. Is a, yeah, it's up on Indiegogo. It's for Phenom. It's completely finished. It's not like other Kickstarter or Indiegogo projects where we need the money to finish it. It's finished. It's, it's, it's published. It's ready to ship. So... Uh, we did really well on Kickstarter, but Indiegogo has a, a different audience, so we thought we'd let them know about it too. Same deal. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm doing my sister Suprema at Arctunes, uh with you know weekly installments. I'm doing a another strip there called Something Big with Frank Fosco, uh, weekly installments, uh, high concept sci-fi heist story, and a number of other things. There's a lot of stuff at Arctunes that's like reprinted material by me. And there are new episodes of Alt Hero Q uh, coming because I've seen artwork for them. So there's a lot of Chuck Dixon material to be seen at Arcades for free. And uh, I I just like last week completed a second uh, Conan the Barbarian novel uh, for Vox. And uh, I started a new Levon Cade novel this week, uh, writing a new Levon Cade novel. And uh, I'm involved with a new company, a new startup company called Spinrack. Uh, that's going to be like a multimedia, uh, comics, games, NFTs, all the rest of it. Uh, and we're we're just we're in early days on that. You can find that on Facebook. You mentioned Conan. Do you think you'll ever get a chance to write Batman again? Because as you know, their copyright is going to come up due. Uh, him and and Superman and Mickey Mouse. Their their time is limited. I know I'm not. It could very well be Congress just punts it like they've done the last dozen times. But do you think there's a chance that would ever happen? Well, I mean, the thing with Conan is all the Howard stuff became public domain. That's the only stuff I was ever interested in. So you've got all those characters. You've got Valeria and all the rest of them. Uh, with the DC characters, the you know the ancillary characters don't come along for a while. So Superman's public domain, but when will Jimmy Olsen be public domain? You know, gotcha. when will Lex Luthor be public domain? And Batman, it's even worse. I mean, Riddler and Catwoman won't be public domain for years. So what do you do? Uh, it's a, you know, Mickey Mouse. You know, yeah, you go crazy with Mickey Mouse, but but the uh, so much of the stuff. It's like Tarzan. Tarzan become became public domain a few years ago, but all the good stuff. You know, you can't touch because it's it's still out there waiting to go PD. So, yeah, I would. So I, if, if, if something goes PD as a whole, like when I worked on Airboy or, or Conan, yeah, that, that's cool. But the rest is it's too limited. Okay, that's interesting. Do you think it will happen, though? Do you think they will enter the public domain? Well, I think before that happens, they'll start licensing them. Uh, I think uh, Marvel's already done a little bit of that with IDW. And I think DC, I've heard very, very, very strong confirmations that DC is going to be licensing at least its like B-level characters to whoever wants to publish comics featuring them. So do you think that's the future for the big two, basically, is they just, we don't really care about comics, so we'll just sell to whoever wants to write them for us, and we'll take a big chunk of the profit, and then maybe we'll mine some of the stories for our movies and TV. Is that is that pretty much the destiny for uh, mainstream comics is that what do you? I hope so. I hope. I, I think it's the smartest move. I mean, they don't print their own T-shirts. You know, 
Uh, they don't do their own action figures. I mean, why would, since you're incapable of creating quality comics, why not let people who can create quality comics? My only fear is, is they'll give them over to, you know, uh, <laughs> Stalinist monsters, even worse than the ones doing it now, that they'll, they'll choose people, you know, based on their ideology rather than their talent or their ability to actually sell comics. But, you know, if you were to cut Batman loose and let, you know, some, you know, people with money move in with top talent, you see some amazing work. I mean, I've already had a number of money people say, when this happens, we will throw money at you to do this. Stuff. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, if they ever loosen up, you know, so a, a buddy of mine, I was talking to my buddy Bo Smith last night, and, and he said, you know, basically suggested we start making a laundry list <laughs> of, you know, possible B-level DC characters we might want to do. Yeah, uh, create a grand epic for Kite Man. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, you know, if they, if they cut something like the Haunted Tank or Sergeant Rock loose, I'm, I'm all over that. Oh, man. Well, this has been fun. Uh, Chuck Dixon, you also have an excellent YouTube show. Um, where can people find your work if they want to follow you, uh, social media and otherwise? Uh, well, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my YouTube channel is just Chuck Dixon. Uh, you can always put my name in at Amazon. There's plenty of stuff there. And, of course, there's there's ArcTunes at ArcHaven.com, which I can't stress enough. It's a high-res, free digital comic platform. We're, we're nearing 10 million views. Uh, we got a lot of great stuff there, totally diverse, every genre you can imagine. And the resolution is so good, you can you can watch, you can read these cartoons on your big screen TV in your family room. Nice. They come in crystal clear. Yeah, it's it's become harder to read. Like the, the sites that sell comics legitimately, they're all, they almost are always worse than the pirated ones for scams. I don't know why that is. So it's nice that it's nice that you guys made sure. This seems like such an obvious, like basic thing. Like, what? Why would you do that? Um, well, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, make them look good. You know, you got this opportunity, got the bandwidth, make them look good. Exactly. All right. Well, Chuck Dixon, this was a lot of fun. I I learned a lot. It was it was my pleasure. Um, if, uh, the opportunity arrives. Love to have you back on again in the future. Um, anything absolutely, else you like? Absolutely. All right, okay. folks. Well, thank you for uh, watching and listening to the podcast. Uh, this has been Culture Escape, and until next time, my friends, see you later.